know I'd go from rags to riches If you would only say you care And though my pocket may be empty I'd be a millionaire My clothes may still be torn and tattered But in my heart I'd be a king Your love is all that ever mattered It's everything Tell me you're mine evermore. Ah, the sweet voice of Tony Bennett, who left us all just 10 days ago. I want to talk about that a little bit and my friendship with him over the years. Um, Not one I think I've really talked about very much over those years, because I like having people that I know that are just people that I know, but there's some things I want to share. I think you'll, I think you'll like to hear this story of him that I'd like to share with you. It's not one that was in all the obituaries and all the tributes and everything that all the well-deserved pieces that came out last week, almost two weeks ago now, but it's my Tony Bennett. So Before we get started, I've put off for a week now talking about Barbie. And the reason I've done that is because I've hoped that most of you would go see it or will have seen it by now because I don't want to spoil anything because as great as I assumed it would be because of the incredible Greta Gerwig, its co-writer and director, the woman who gave us Lady Bird an actor who has been in so many great indie films over the years. But um, this blew me away. As high as my expectations were, as as much as I knew and, 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 and knowing Greta just a little bit, I knew it would be great. It not only was great, it's one of those rare pieces of art that takes place And sometimes in any of our lives, you encounter this once, twice, maybe a third time, I don't know. But it's a piece of art that creates a seismic shift. And in this case, a film that she makes last year, when she was on set and filming it, and the Supreme Court declares women, once again, second-class citizens, removes legally, removes their bodily autonomy. And I've not spoken to Greta about this. Maybe I'll have her on the podcast here in the coming weeks or months. There's a lot I'd like to talk to her about because this movie, let me say right from the beginning, it, 
you are laughing from the first minute of the film where you've probably seen the clip of doing a uh, parody of the opening of 2001 where the, the monkeys and the apes are learning how to use a, a weapon with the bones from the carcasses of what they've killed for dinner. And in this case, instead of the monolith, it's Barbie appears. This is the very, very beginning of the film. I'm not giving anything away. And it's a very large, tall Barbie. And all these little girls are playing with their dolls. What looks like to be on the set of uh, the beginning of 2001. And once they encounter Barbie, the monolith Barbie, they start bashing their dolls in. They start picking up their dolls, breaking them on rocks decapitating them <laughs> and then throwing it up in the air like the bone that transitions 2001 at the, the beginning of that great movie. Anyways, I'm not going to get into any more of this uh, today with Barbie. I am going to write something I think this week on my Substack, and maybe I'll come back and do a podcast in the next week or two because I really, really want to talk to you about this film, but I want you to see it first. So if you've thought about not seeing it because you think it's a Barbie movie, because, of course, why would you go to a Barbie movie? You have to see this film. It is the best film I've seen this year. It may be the best film I've seen in the last five years, maybe. You know, you have to kind of give a little pause to that first to see how it holds. But I got to tell you, my friends, it's certainly the best satire that I've seen, I would say, since uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian, a film that just goes after organized religion and the story of Jesus in the way that upset at the time all the right-wingers and the born-agains and all this, the moral majority, Jerry Falwell, that whole era. It was a brave and courageous film, Life of Brian. And this is a brave, courageous film, not simply because it's a, quote, feminist film or feminist take on the Barbie story, it eviscerates capitalism, the rise of authoritarianism and fascism, and the patriarchy. And by the way, those are just words I'm quoting from the film. All those words are in the film. You actually are going to a film called Barbie, and you hear the words capitalism, fascism, and patriarchy. And it goes after Mattel the makers of Barbie, the owners of Barbie, in a vicious way, but not a mean, not a mean way, because again, this film really is a is a comedy. It's a satire. But Will Farrow, as the CEO of Mattel, I'm not going to give any of this. You have to see this first. But you're just sitting there thinking, how did she get away with this? How? How did this film get made? What were the fights that she had to maintain its integrity, to never pull her punch, to go further than you've seen maybe any feminist film go? Everybody's saying, you know, you should take your daughters, take your sons to this too. You will sit there with your jaw agape as it should be. And you will remember that in the year that Roe v. Wade was abolished, this was the art that came out of it. And don't kid yourself for a minute 
that, you know, people, <laughs> I know, I mean, I have a theater in Michigan, a nonprofit theater. I've been showing it. We've had 21 sold out shows this week in its first week. We don't have enough seats for all the people that want to see it. And yes, if you wear pink, you come to my theater, you get free popcorn. But my theater, as you can probably imagine, is a place where you, popcorn is normally, you can get it for $2. Um, you can, you can still see a movie there for seven bucks and kids matinees are a buck. So, but that's for another day for right now. Just go see it. Please go see Barbie. I will have seen it again by the time I write what I'm going to write on Substack or come back to you here on this podcast. But, um, I'm not steering you wrong. My friends, uh, literally to find, go back and think of a movie that takes on not the culture, not society, not our human foibles, not that kind of satire. The sat say, for instance, the satire of this is Spinal Tap, another best film of all time on my list, one of them. And it was a satire about rock and roll and the music industry, and it was great, absolutely great. But this is next level, my friends. The place where our political leaders are afraid to go, where our so-called activists are afraid to go. Greta Gerwig goes there. And with such passion, with such humor, and with a vengeance. Whew. Do not miss this film. It is Dr. Strange Love level. Okay. Life of Brian level. Um, I'm going to take a quick break here to thank our, uh, my underwriter for today. And then please come back because I have uh, some things to tell you about Tony Bennett that you probably didn't hear about here after his passing. And this uh, particular episode of Rumble with Michael Moore is brought to you by BetterHelp. Sometimes uh, in life, when we find ourselves at a crossroads with a tough choice ahead, we freeze, we get stuck. Talking to a therapist can help you sort through the paths that lie ahead and find the right way forward for you. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online and it's flexible to fit into your schedule. It's so convenient, just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map, my friends, with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rumble to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rumble. And thank you to the people at BetterHelp for supporting this podcast and supporting my voice. I left my heart in San Francisco high on a hill It calls to me Tony Bennett, my friends. I knew that he, I don't want to say had been fading because that remarkable Radio City Music Hall 
concert that he did with Lady Gaga. What was that, just not even two years ago? He was already deep into Alzheimer's. It really, it was just some kind of miracle. I don't know how else to describe it. If you have a chance to, to see it, it was on CBS. I think you can probably get it online or Paramount Plus or whatever, but it's an amazing performance. His voice, perfect. But I want to tell you a little bit about the Tony Bennett uh, that I knew and how sad I was to hear the news a week ago this past Friday that he was no longer with us. What is that feeling where there are some people you just, you either convince yourself they're never going to pass away or even though you're maybe ready for it, you're not ready for it. And that's how I felt when I heard the news. It really hit me. I was going to record something that day and I just, I was just, I, you know, and I couldn't believe that it was just, it's not even, what's it been, four months? Even has it been four months since Harry Belafonte died? Same age, both died at 96 years old, both born, I think, 1926, months apart from each other, and they died months apart from each other. And I considered Harry a friend and uh, a mentor when he didn't even know he was a mentor of mine. And now Tony. I first met Tony Bennett. I was new in New York after my first film. And I had finally gotten an, an agent for my movies to help me get the next movie made. Um, his name was Sam Cohn, very well known in the film community and the Broadway community. One of the elder statesmen of, of agents. And uh, he had called me one day and I didn't have an agent and wasn't looking for an agent. And he said he wanted to be my agent. <laughs> and so he took me to the uh, Russian Tea Room on West 57th Street. Now, I know you're pausing for a moment to imagine me sitting in a place called the Russian Tea Room. Yes, but there I was. And he had his table. It was the first table as you came in for, and you looked to the right. And there was Sam Cohn usually. I think many days, most days for lunch. And so we were sitting there uh, talking and uh, I look up, I'm facing, I'm facing the door and I see behind Sam, Tony Bennett come in the restaurant. And Tony looks over and he sees me. We'd never met before, obviously, you know, I'm just a year out of Flint, Michigan. And um, he makes a beeline to the table right at me, comes right up to me. I don't think he sees Sam sitting there because he can just see the, the back of Sam's head. But he comes right up onto the side of the table and holds out his arm, his hand, grabs me and says, he says, you, Michael Moore, you are my hero. And I'm like, I'm just so stunned, first of all, because... I mean, this is, this first of all, is my dad's favorite singer. My dad's, probably my dad's favorite song, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. You know, he was of my parents' generation. But of course, I, I knew about all the good that Tony Bennett had done over the years, all the things he stood for. And so here he is grabbing my 
my hand, my arm, my shoulder, and saying, and, I'm, and of course, you know, I'm such a cynic when it comes to myself. And my first thought is, what do you, how could I be your hero? I've made one movie. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I just was speechless. And he goes, he starts telling me his favorite scenes in Roger and Me. He can't believe that he's getting to meet me. This is like crazy, right? And I'm like, no. And this one I think was my cue when I said, I think, Mr. Bennett, you've got to call me Tony. Okay, Tony, you've got this turned around. <laughs> it's it's I who cannot believe I'm getting to meet you. And when I call my father after this lunch, he isn't going to believe it either. So he talked some more about what was going on at, the, see, this was 1989, 1990. You know, what was going on politically. We were still in the Reagan Bush years and, you know, and he was always a very, very politically astute person, always involved himself in good causes and good things. And it's like Sam sitting there and he hasn't even looked down at Sam yet. And I, I, I said, you know, Mr. Cohen or Sam Cohen, Sam, you know, this guy, I mean, of course I, and I would see this for the next 33 years of his life. What a kind, open, gentle, warm soul that he was. And it wasn't a surprise that the public saw him that way too, because he actually was that way. But everyone in his life that got to experience Tony Bennett. And, um, you know, he was meeting people there and just thanked me again and again. And I said the same to him. And he wanted to make sure that we, you know, exchanged a way to, you know, reach each other if we needed to. And then that was it. And I couldn't believe it. And I said to Sam, I just, did that just happen? <laughs> He's like, yes. He says, you know, a lot of people did like your movie. I said, no, no, I, I know that. I'm very grateful. And, you know, but I, you know, it's a, the, I would get that kind of reaction from, you know, most people that I would run into that, from the working class or grew up working class. And, and Sam said, well, you know, he's from Queens. Do you know what that means? I said, well, I know that, I don't know, Queens is, I guess, where Archie Bunker, where all in the family was set. <laughs> he goes, yeah, okay. Yes, there's that Queens. But it's the, it's the working class part of New York. And that's how he grew up. And he never, never forgot that. And that's who you just met. Same Tony Benedetto from Queens. Grew up in Astoria, Queens. And, um, and that's who I got to meet. And the next time I met him was my daughter's band concert in grade school. Here I am at this band concert uh, for my uh, fifth grader. And there's Tony Bennett <laughs> sitting in the... Uh, Whatever it was, the, um, was it a gym? No, it wasn't a, was it a cafeteria? I don't know. It was some cleared out space at the school with folding chairs. And he, there he, I'm looking over and there he is. And then he spots me and I nod, you know, we both nod. <laughs> and then, uh, afterwards, you know, he comes up to me and he, me to him and 
And I don't, you know, I'm afraid to say anything because I don't, you know, he's, well, he's at that point, we'll see what year. He, you know, he was uh, well into his 60s, if, if not maybe close to 70. I can't remember now. But I was, I'm just thinking that, okay, I mean, he's got a kid here, you know, um, and, you know, he's an older man and maybe he's, and he has uh, he had kids later in life. Uh, nothing wrong with that. I said, so what, did you have a son or daughter here in the band? <laughs> he goes, yeah, my, my, uh, my, my grandchild here is, is in the band. And, uh, I said, Oh my God. So like you come to the PTA stuff here, but not, but you're not a parent. You're a grandparent, like the GPTA. He goes, yeah, I try to, I try to make all the, you know, whatever the grandkids do. I, I try to try to be here. And I met his son, uh, Danny, and uh, who was his manager. So we talked a bit there. But I, and then I would see him at other times. In fact, in those early years, I think that maybe the times I saw him most possibly could have been at a a school concert or um, grade school play. But that was again, it was just like, okay, that's Tony Bennett. But he's not sitting there. He's not thinking, hey, I'm Tony Bennett. I'm sitting here. He's the guy from Queens. He's got a grandkid at this elementary school. And my various visits and encounters with him over the years, and, and I'm not, listen, I'm not, we were not like close friends. We didn't hang out every month, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But our paths crossed many times. And we did have these occasions where, you know, over a meal or whatever, we, uh, we're able to talk and get to know each other. And it was, I could easily say those times that I did get to spend with him were great help to me, especially in my early years. Cause once you're kind of thrown from, in my case, the unemployment line in Flint, Michigan, having literally nothing to then having something and being in this business. And now, you know, making my other films and having a primetime weekly series on NBC and, you know, all this stuff, it's, it's a little discombobulating. And I often thought then, because, you know, I was going this, I got to do this in my thirties. So the younger kids that, uh, hit it big, whether in music or movies or whatever, and there may be teenagers even. This has got to be, I just remember thinking, how do they handle this? And of course, a lot of them have a hard time handling it. And they lose, you know, their money. They lose, they lose themselves sometimes uh, until they find themselves. By the time I was, though, in my 30s and I had my first film out at the age of 34 or whatever, I'm a kind of a fully formed adult at that point. And I've already been through the usual ups and downs that you have in your teen years and your twenties and whatever. Having these chances to sit and talk with Tony was a real gift. I got to hear his life story. I got to hear about his ups and downs. I got to share my feelings with what I should or should not be doing with my life, with my own art, so to speak. Um, and the things that, the little bits that he would offer, I would go home and I'd write them down. It, it was, I, I can't ever forget what he just told me. 
I got, well, I remember at one point he was probably 80 or close to 80 at that point. And, and I said to him, what is the secret, Tony? Just tell me, I, if you don't want me to tell anybody else, I won't just, what is the secret to how you are 80 years old and you're still on tour. You're still have this great voice. What, what do I have to do to get there? And he said, well, I get asked this a lot. Yes. And, um, in my home here, probably may have noticed, I don't have a lot of nostalgia and I don't really believe in nostalgia. I don't. Yeah. And he was right. And he, he did not, he didn't, I mean, he had pictures of his, his wife and his children and grandkids and, uh, you know, the usual stuff people would have. He didn't have the 20 Grammy awards on the mantle. <laughs> you know, he didn't have stuff from the past. Like I think is the best way to put it. And he said, that's on purpose. I don't, have like a scrapbook here sitting on the coffee table where I sit there and look at myself 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And I made a decision that um, I would live in the present and not the past. I made that decision many years ago that I think about today or I think about the future. I do think about the future, a lot about the future. But I don't dwell on the past. And I know, you know, for sentimental reasons, I know why people do, and it's it's beautiful and and you know, and I do have some of that, obviously, but I think I've made it this far because I'm looking ahead. Or I'm looking at today. But I'm not stuck on today. And I'm not dwelling about what I didn't like or whatever about today. I'm already into tomorrow. He says, try that. Because he says it's really worked for me. <laughs> and, and so I did. I changed things around in my office, in my apartment. Again, it's not that I didn't have, obviously, things, you know, my sisters and their kids and, you know, my parents, of course, and all that. But you know, and I, we had the magnets on the refrigerator of our daughter's artwork and, and poetry and whatever. Yes, all of that. But I made a decision, first of all, to, to not have the Oscar on the mantle. And actually, I didn't give it away, but I, I got a theater reopened in the town I was living in in Michigan. And we re, we actually rebuilt it. Then we built a second one out of an old, building from the 1940s. So we had two nonprofit movie theaters in this Michigan town that had no movie theater within its city limits. And so I said to the people I had running it, just here, keep, I want you to keep my Oscar here. You know, just keep it in the office of the theater of the film festival that we set up. And every now and then we'll put it out and we'll let people stamp a picture of themselves holding an Oscar like they were just presented with an Oscar. And maybe during the Oscar month every year, we can put it in a, in a case there and people can see live and in person an Oscar, which is something you don't normally see. You don't, you know, you don't get to raise the Stanley Cup. You don't, you know, most of us this well, in your lifetime, right? You don't, you know, you're not wearing an Olympic medal. 
Nobody's presenting me with a Nobel Prize or you. So, and I like that idea. I like the idea of sharing it. I like the idea. I've always thought too, like if that ever happens again, uh, you know, getting another Oscar, I'm going to set it up so that the crew, everybody who had, you know, the key roles on the film uh, will share the Oscar. And maybe if there's 12 of us that make this film, each of us get a month with the Oscar on our mantle, something like that. Or let your parents have it for the month or whatever. But I just started thinking about this stuff. It's like, this, of course, this is stuff I don't care about. This is not why I'm making these movies anyways. And I'm just, and yeah, I want to think about the next movie. I'm already thinking about the next movie when I'm making the movie I'm making. If you're thinking about tomorrow, you've got to think about those things. But he was that person. He was always political in that sense. He always, as a, as a good American, he was very proud of the fact that he was an American citizen. And he always showed up. He was there for civil rights, Martin Luther King. He was there and has been there for progressive candidates. He's taken stands over the years that uh, I think were very brave. You know, he recovered from his own drug and alcohol addiction and then realized after thinking about it that the, the way to control, handle, and deal with our drug problem in, as a society is it's not a legal problem. It's a mental problem. It's a medical problem. And uh, we need to treat it like that. And he favored the legalization of drugs. One of the first people I ever heard suggest that, you know, it's still shocking to hear, you know, people say, and he wasn't just talking about cannabis. I mean, he realized that there are people who know who can drink and and get high and whatever, and it not affect their daily life. And there are people that can't do that. And we've got to not criminalize this. Very, very early supporter of this. I don't know if I ever heard him refer to himself. I think I read it somewhere as a pacifist, but, but he was against war. This is a man who received the Bronze Star during World War II, okay? And was in the uh, unit, the army unit, that liberated one of the camps, the concentration camps at Dachau in Germany. And I asked him about that at one point over the years. What was that like? What did that do to you to see that? To, to physically see it, smell it, be there, to witness this grotesque crime against humanity. But, but you're actually there with the deceased, the victims of this. And he said, well, it, it probably it's affected me the rest of my life. It affected me in that moment. And I, um, it changed me. And I said, into what? Well, I'm a veteran of World War II and I'm against war. I'm for peace. I was against Vietnam. I was against, I'm against all these wars. And it was so, I'm thinking, here's, this is of my dad's generation. My, you know, my dad who had a similar path in the sense of, he was in the South Pacific in the Marines, and 
from Vietnam on, that's all I heard from my dad. It was against war and it was against any president that would take us to war. And here's Tony Bennett saying the same thing to me. And himself being a personal witness to history. And it sounds like such a cliche to put it that way, because what he saw was this horror. The horror. And again, he doesn't think about the pain. He's not thinking about it every day. Whatever it did to him in 1945, that made that part of Tony Bennett, Tony Bennett for the rest of his life. He was there. He showed up when people needed help. He showed up when we had to fight against our own particular forms of of right-wingism and fascism, he showed up. And again, never thinking about his, quote, career. And amazingly, because he was so beloved by the people of this country, by all kinds of people, I'm certain by many Republicans, and they didn't desert him and they didn't attack him and they they loved his music and I guess that's good enough. And that was that. And he remained one of the most beloved Americans of my lifetime. One day he says to me, I have a connection to Detroit. I said, really? I said, well, we were talking about, because, you know, even though he doesn't want to live in the past, I'm always asking him about things that happened in the 40s and uh, 50s and 60s and whatever. And, and because he was very involved with uh, in supporting civil rights, he told me how he'd gotten a call one day from Harry Belafonte. It was right after the first Sunday of the Selma March where they had to stop the march. They couldn't even get really to the bridge because the sheriff and the cops and the sheriffs, the dogs, everything were brought out. And it's the day they, they beat uh, John Lewis and beat a lot of people sick the dogs on them. And so they tried two more times to do the march in that month in 1965. And finally on the third, they were going to do the third time and they were going to try to get thousands to do the march. Maybe if they were lucky, a thousand, maybe 5,000. Martin Luther King put out the call. He called Harry Belafonte, his probably one of his closest friends. And, um, asked him, could you get some famous people involved in this to maybe join us here on this march, especially white people? And so Harry called Tony and said, would you come to Selma? And I think Tony had a concert that week. It was coming up, but but uh, he was free because Harry wanted to do um, one. I think the march went for like, it took four days to walk from Selma to Montgomery, if, I'm, if my memory is correct. And uh, on one of the nights, while they're camped out in a field off the road to Montgomery, Martin Luther King and Harry Belafonte wanted to put on a concert for all the marchers and to invite, you know, people to come and perform. And he said, would you come? We're going to just, it's going to be a makeshift stage in the middle of a field, essentially. The makeshift stage, by the way, they couldn't haul a stage during down the march. So in a small town, a local town, an undertaker gave them 
I don't know, a few dozen coffins, caskets. And they put, a, I guess, a piece of plywood on top of the caskets, and they, that provided the foundation for the stage. And Tony said, yes, I will be there, Harry. And he was. He showed up. Harry also called Marlon Brando, Paul Newman, a number of other people, Peter, Paul, and Mary. And they all came. And they, if they weren't singers, they gave a talk, read a poem. And Tony told me, he said, when I took to the, the stage there, and it's dark out, basically. You can, they've got some lights up, but it's not, not much. And you can see some of the audience that said, of, and he said, it's sitting there on the ground, like in the, there's no rows, but we'll call it the third row, is Martin Luther King sitting on the ground, just sitting there with the other marchers and protesters. And he said, I started to sing this song and my eyes locked on him. I just, I'm like, I'm, this is Martin Luther King sitting on, on dirt to listen to me sing. And he said, and I, and for the rest of my songs that night, for my part of the concert, I sang to him. I kept my eyes on him the whole time. I wanted him to feel like this is for you. I know it's for everybody and I know it's for civil rights and I know it's, but you have risked your life so many times for this. And all I've done is shown up to sing a few songs. This is the way Tony had told it to me, but it was powerful. He said powerful to sing directly into this beautiful face is the way he put it. Beautiful face with a beautiful smile. He said, the next uh, morning, I had to make my way to the nearest airport because I had a concert that night or the next night or whatever. And uh, they said, um, well, we, ha we have volunteers here. We have somebody can drive you. And so this, his driver, this volunteer, this woman, and I've talked about her before on this uh, podcast, and I have written about her also, both in my book and uh, one of my books and um, my substack. She was a housewife. Uh, that's a, a term they used back then when women were raising the kids at home. That was a real job, raising five kids. She had five kids. Her name was Viola Luiso. She had seen the beating of John Lewis and the other protesters on the first Sunday of the march. And then again on the second Sunday, where the march was stopped again from crossing the bridge. And then she said to her husband, I, I, I can't take this anymore. She's in Detroit. She says, I can't take this anymore. I have to, I have to go down there and help. And he said, I support you and I'll take care of the kids. And off she went in her car, drives from Detroit down to Selma, Alabama, and says, I'm here to help. Well, you have a car. Well, you could ferry people back and forth during the march. She goes, great, oh, that's what I'll do. Sure enough, the next day after this uh, concert in the field, there she is, introduces herself to Tony Bennett. I've, I've been sent here to take you to the airport. And uh, you know, he says to me, it was, she was very nice and it was just wonderful. And we talked about Detroit and uh, 
and you know the importance of the civil rights movement and we've got to get this voting rights act passed but what struck him about her was just that she literally was if if there was a, a template for the average american that was her she was not necessarily a political person not some she wasn't running the local activist organization in detroit or whatever she was viola louiso and her five kids and um she dropped him off at the airport and they said goodbye and he thanked her again for volunteering to help and of course she thanked him for coming and uh and he said quietly his voice i hear him telling me this um and i was the last person she drove because as those of you know who've listened to me talk about her before and i didn't know this story at all till he tells me this that night she was taking a, a black man one of the people involved in the march back to selma and a, a car full of white people white guys clan members clan types the car passes them and they see a white woman driving a black man the black man sitting up front with her and they pull a u-turn and they speed up and they come up and they're following her very close and they ram her uh, car from the back end and then they pull up alongside her and pull out their guns and fire numerous bullets into the car and into her and into her passenger and she died she was killed instantly he was not killed he was uh, i believe wounded and when they got out of the car to check to make sure she was dead he knew to play dead they believed he was dead there was enough blood all over and they got back in the car and they took off and um he said that uh that that is my connection to detroit that detroit gave one of its own for this cause and the fact that i was the last person to see her alive to be helped by her again affected him in such a profound way and what he did with that is what he told me he'd done his whole life these moments would happen these things would take place and he would he would own it embrace it make it part of himself and not look back move forward what else has to be done what else do i have to dedicate my life to to make things better wow and i'm learning of this the first time i know this particular story of who who was the last person alive to be ferried by Viola Louiso in her car from Detroit and it was Tony Bennett I could see what you know what made up who he was obviously I don't know the early years I wasn't I'm too young for that but from Dachau to Selma 
uh, everything else uh, he was involved in, and all the all the little tidbits and the little things that he would share with me. And then I finally got a chance. He was on tour performing. I believe it was at Interlock in there in Michigan. And I got a chance to uh, take my dad to go see him and to uh, meet him backstage afterwards. Oh my God, you're you're the father of Michael Boyd. It's like hugging my dad and, was, and you know, it was a beautiful moment. And of course my mom loved him too, she was there. And But he remembered that I had told him this stuff about my dad and, and the war and everything and, and it was, Oh, geez, I can just play this sit here now and see the two of them like that. And Tony was very loving and generous to my father that night. And my dad beamed, beamed about this for weeks, months to come and would still bring it up. My dad passed away when he was just about 93. And um, he he lived with that moment. That's for that's for certain. Yeah, I ran into Danny, Tony's son. It was the 30th anniversary at the Beacon Theater in New York of the movie This Is Spinal Tap, and Rob Reiner was there, and the band they all you know, got back together. They showed the movie. And they played and it was a great night and Danny Bennett was there and he came up to me and he said, uh, you know, it's uh, not really I don't, the, a public yet, but um, uh, my father is uh, starting to, I forget if he called it dementia then or if, it, I don't know if the Alzheimer's, I don't think the Alzheimer's had, was officially Alzheimer's probably till a couple of years later, but. But he said, but you know, he still, he knows who we are and it's, it's, but it's, you know, things are starting to fade and I know he'd love to see you. He'll recognize you. He'll know you. You should come by. And, you know, I kept kind of making a plan to do that. And I ran into Danny again, you know, maybe a year later and hey, I've been meaning to get over there and I've been back in Michigan though and this and that and whatever. And, and then I made like three movies back to back to back there and, uh, 15, 16, and 17, where did they next? And uh, Trump land and uh, Fahrenheit 11.9. And so, you know, so I was gone a lot. And you know how life gets, right? I mean, it's just, it's not really an excuse, but I just kept, you know, saying, kept making a point, you know, I got to get over there and see him. And then COVID hit. And now, you know, well, he wasn't really seeing anybody outside of his family and a few good friends, especially at the beginning. And neither was I. I mean, none of us were, right? If you remember, everybody was in kind of their own lockdown. And the sad part of it is I had a chance to go to that concert at Radio City two years ago. And uh, I asked my doctor, you know, because, you know, I, I was following all his rules so that I wouldn't get covid you know, what did you, what do you think about going to Radio City? He says, with 6,000 other people. I said, yeah. He goes, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, I know he's right because, um, you know, 
because, 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 because. So I didn't go. And, um, but I did see him one last time. It was before COVID. And, uh, I decided to do a Broadway show, a one man show that I wrote and performed. Uh, and it was quite an amazing thing to make your uh, Broadway debut after you turn 60. <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, really well received, certainly by the audiences that came there. It was a limited, you know, play. I had, I had the place, the Broadway theater there for 12 weeks and uh, great reviews except for one which I still haven't read. Um, it's another thing. That's another thing Tony Bennett would tell you. Don't read the reviews. <laughs> that is great advice. Never. And, and the thing is, you don't want to read them whether they're, even, even when they're good, because if you start believing the good, you can't just all of a sudden when you get, when they, the same critic writes a bad review, you can't, oh, he, he, that guy sucks. <laughs> no, it's uh, you, either, either you believe that critic or you don't. And I found it best to just, just the critics have their job and let them do it. I've been very blessed by them, believe me, over the years. This is, I'm not complaining, but uh, so anyway, so there's opening night at the Belasco Theater on West 44th, just east of Broadway. Big, beautiful, one of the oldest Broadway theaters in existence now. And um, so I'm, you know, I got all the first night, opening night jitters. And um, backstage, getting ready to go out, I'm standing behind the curtain. We have this whole, at that time, Trumpian opening. I should say Trumpian style, if there is such a thing as that. But funny. And um, it's my cue. The curtain's open. I walk out. People applaud. The place is full. There's not an empty seat. I'm uh, overwhelmed by it all. <laughs> and now I don't get to leave the stage for the next 90 to 100 minutes. And the lights that are hitting the stage illuminate, I would say, pretty well the first three to five rows. You can kind of see who's sitting there. And I'm like, all of a sudden, my my... I can't do a split eye like my right eye going one way and the left eye going the other, but let, let me just tell you what this, what I'm witnessing. I'm standing there at the front of the stage and I look to my right and sitting on the aisle in the third row, third row on the aisle is Harry Belafonte. <laughs> and then, you know, I turn my head because I'm, you know, talking to everybody in the, Theater, And then in the exact same seat, third row on the left aisle is Tony Bennett. So my head goes, Harry, Tony, Tony, Harry. And I'm like, there's no way to describe it. I think just put yourself in my shoes. And now I'm going to perform for the next, you know, hopefully under two hours. 
And, and all of a sudden, what clicked in my head was what Tony had said about Martin Luther King sitting there in the field when Tony was on stage and deciding to just sing those songs right to Martin Luther King. So that night, I spent probably more than half of the evening when I would speak to the audience, I'd speak to Harry Belafonte, and then I would turn my head to my left and speak to Tony Bennett. And try not to pause and think about how did I end up here from Flint, Michigan. The, the blessing of this moment, which I will never take for granted, that they both are here and they're sitting in exactly the same seat, except one's on the right and one's on the left aisle. And it pulled me through. It got me through that night. And um, I'll never forget the sight of it. <sighs> I mean, Tony obviously already is in, you know, he's at a place where, you know, the fading, as I call it, starts. Yet he would last and be with us for a number of years after that, as would Harry. Born the same year, leave us the same year, at the same age. And all that they gave to us, to this country, to the world, what they stood for, what they had the courage to do, and how they both impacted and affected me on a personal level, on a professional level. Whew, wow. And all I can think of as I'm telling you this story is, is to remind myself of the, the work that still has to be done and what I have to do and to do it in honor of people like them. But obviously, of course, do it because so many millions of people still suffering from the inequality and the inequities of this society. Still the hate and the violence and the bigotry and the all of this that all of us have to be concerned about and do something about it. And I remember thinking, I thought I had this thought when, when Harry passed away earlier this year, and I've had it this last week after Tony's passing, that they're still alive. They are alive. Harry's alive. Tony's alive. I mean, not in the sense that, that maybe the dictionary would define alive. They've passed on. Yet they are alive. They're alive because of all the good that they did lives on. The things that have gotten a bit better have happened. In part because of what they and millions of others did 
So they're not the only ones who are still alive. Anybody who's picked up a picket sign, who's shown up to vote for Shirley Chisholm, <laughs> anybody who has spoken to a coworker about, you know, something about that isn't just right. Something about this is unfair. Anybody who's done anything other than sit on the couch and who are no longer with us, they are all alive. And that's what I've been thinking about this last week. Tony Bennett is still alive. Yes, his music will always be with us. Yes, the memories of him in concert or on TV or his duets with Lady Gaga and all the other people he did those duet albums with. All of that, yes, of course, lives and will live on. But it is who they were as human beings and how they acted as citizens of a not yet fully formed democracy. And because that work continues, they continue. Because they did the work, they live and they live on. They don't continue to live if we don't continue that work. If we give up, if we are burned out, if we, I just got to take care of myself. I just got to take care of my family. I just got to, yes, you have to do all those things too. But, but if we stop, if we stop now, then will their lives have been in vain? I don't want to think that thought. So I choose to keep them alive. Tony Bennett lives because the work continues. What he believed in continues. We continue it. We breathe life into them, into all of our neighbors, our fellow citizens on this planet. We are the ones now. And this is where you, I know a lot of you write me, how do you stay so optimistic? Well, I'm not trying. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably not somewhere in my core, not wired for that. And yet I am optimistic because, not because I think things will get better or whatever. It's because I think that I will make them better. I'll contribute my small piece of making it better. And because I do control myself, I know what I'm going to do this month, next month, next year to make my contribution. They live. We live. The world that we want to live in will live if we do that. That's what I learned from Tony Bennett and Harry and a whole ton of other people in my life. The gratitude I have is immense. This Thursday, Tony Bennett turns 97. Not would have turned. Tony Bennett is 97. That's his birthday, this coming Thursday. So if you have a moment to think about it, to maybe share what I've just 
told you about Tony Bennett, things that maybe you didn't know, share it with other people. And just think about what it is that we all have to do and already are doing and will continue to do. My thanks to all of you for listening today. To my executive producer, Angela Vargos. Go see Barbie. Please. You and I, we have to talk. And uh, Tony, I, I know you left your heart in San Francisco. But the truth is, you left it with all of us. And that heart will keep beating because we're going to keep going following your example, doing the work that needs to be done. Goodbye, Tony. We love you. Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by. If you smile through your fears and sorrow, smile and maybe tomorrow, you'll see the sun come shining through for you light up your face with gladness hide every trace of sadness although it is Maybe ever so That's the time You must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life Is still worthwhile If you just That's the time you must keep on trying. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile. 
If you just smile